If you ever wonder how your faith upholds you in difficult times, go back and look at the history of that song and who wrote it. It's well worth doing. Great song. Heavenly Father, we pray again this morning that we as the people who call ourselves your children reflect upon your word and reflect upon the circumstances in our lives these days. We pray that we would be encouraged and uplifted by your word. Give us strength for today and for tomorrow. Give us hope. Give us direction and lead us. Thank you for your grace in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. So a couple of questions. How do we react as Christians? What should we be thinking? How should our lives reflect this week that we are people of faith in light of the war crimes and the atrocities in the Ukraine, in light of the deaths of many innocent civilians, in light of the stories of the 19 children and the two teachers in Uvalde, Texas, who were murdered, how do we react? How do we see that? What's the, the grid that we look through? We grieve, of course, for the families. We recognize the severe trauma that the children who survived are gonna to have to deal with for the rest of their lives. At the very least, we know that we should pray for them, and we do. How do we live? How do we react? How do we react to this, this barrage of media that keeps telling us so many different answers to the horrific news? And the answers are, we need better mental health services. We need better security. We need to harden the security at our schools. We need more police presence. We need more gun control. You know, I saw an editorial sketch, a little cartoon a few days ago that showed a pitiful child, apparently in Uvalde, asking in the first frame of the two-frame two cartoon, in the first frame there's a little child and he says, where is God? In the second frame, another little child answers and says, there is no God. You need better gun control, stupid. Boy, that's a scary editorial comment, isn't it? There is no God. We need to look at the violence and the horrific incidents like this, the massacre of innocent people, and ask ourselves, what sort of worldviews prevail in the society that we live in? And we know we've heard about humanism and moral relativism and an absence, total absence of absolutes, there's no absolute truth, and the philosophy nowadays that feelings trumped fact, trump facts. And, and I wonder, are we abandoning biblical truth? Have we just lost the Bible somehow? The American Bible Society conducted a survey this year in 2022 and they found that there has been, listen to this, an unprecedented drop in the percentage of Bible users in the United States. That nearly X number, 
of Americans reduced or totally stopped their interaction with scripture in 2021, last year? What do you think the number is? How many Americans either totally dropped or totally reduced their interaction with scripture in the last year? How many Americans? 26 million. 26 million Americans decided that this book's not that important and not that relevant anymore. And we don't need to read it. We don't need to look at it. During graduation ceremonies, I was thinking about the fact that we've got lots of graduations going on, high school, elementary school, middle school graduation, college graduations. One of the themes that I've heard over and over and over for the last 20 years, one of the themes that I hear the valedictorians and salutatorians speaking about, it goes all the way back. I remember when some of our kids graduated from high school and they kept repeating this theme. Let me know if you've heard this before. Follow your heart and achieve your dreams. You heard that theme? Just follow your heart, darling. If you can dream it, you can make it so. And another one that really scares me is trust your instincts. We need to address the issues in the world today by seeing the world through biblical lenses. Amen? Theologians come up with these fancy terms all the time, and one of the fancy terms is total depravity. And we as Christians need to remember that and think about what does it mean? What does it mean that we are totally sinful and without hope except for the grace of God? What do we know about God? What do we know about mankind? That's kind of what I want to take a look at today, just a refresher on mankind and God and God's interaction with man. The Bible says this, the heart is deceitful above all things. That's scary, folks. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So when somebody says, follow your heart and achieve your dreams, just go where your heart leads to you. If you can dream it, you can succeed. You got to remember that it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The Hebrew translation of that word for desperately wicked, we, we, the Hebrew word is translated desperately wicked, but what that word means is uh, essentially it's a word that means deathly ill, like somebody with a terminal incurable disease, desperately wicked. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no not one. If we look at what's happened in Uvalde and what's happened around the world, we go, wow. The culture embraces humanism and moral relativism and people around us believe this. Humans, quote, have everything necessary to enjoy a fulfilling life, to succeed, to be happy, and there's no need for any supernatural influence whatsoever. The Bible lets us know that people that say that are missing the mark. They need to understand the nature of God and the privilege of our position as humans. 
You got that? The nature of God, the nature of man. There's total depravity and then there's the nature of God and the privilege of God's people. In Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Names were important in the Old Testament especially. A person's name meant something. And the name of God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is important and majestic. You set your glory above the heavens out of the mouths of babies and infants. You've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? I am reminded when I read that verse of the greatness of God and the depravity of man and the humility with which I should look at God and say, thank you, God. Amen? Thank you, God, for that, uh, the theologians call it prevenient grace. Thanks for the grace that you gave me when I didn't deserve anything at all on my own merit, my own good works, my own performance. You gave me enough grace to give me hope and a glimpse into the truth of your love for me and what the word grace really means. What have I ever done? What have I ever done that I should deserve glory and honor? And yet it says that he gives us glory and honor. Aren't you glad if you get nothing else out of today's scripture and today's sermon? Aren't you glad that you don't get what you deserve. You know, if you're a child growing up and your parents are pretty easy on you and they're not really strict and you just keep being really aggressively bad, disobedient and disobedient and, and you sh I remember, I remember when my mom got really angry with me one time and she said, I'm going to tell your father. And, and I was mortified because I thought, I don't mind if she punishes me, but he's going to give me what I deserve. Aren't you glad you don't get what you deserve? Aren't we as children just thrilled when the punishment is much lighter or no punishment or our parents says, all right, just don't do that again. And God doesn't for eternity give us what we deserve. He gives us glory and honor. It says in verse 6 in that psalm, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heaven, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. In other words, you have been given a position of dominion over the earth and the animals of the earth. Not because you deserve it, but because God is good and God is great and God is awesome and God's name is majestic above all the earth. How can it be that a sovereign God would give you and me dominion 
over the earth. Because in his incredible mercy, he looks at us and with his incredible grace, he gives us the treatment as if we're important to him. That's amazing. If the President of the United States walked in today and spoke to you personally and said, hey Bob, how are you? Are you doing well today? How's your family? And treated you as if you were important to him, you'd feel pretty good. Until you realized that he wanted your vote. <laughs> or, he, or he was working the crowd or whatever. But if he really meant it, you'd be excited because somebody important has recognized you. And how do we feel? When God treats us as people whom he loves, the world around us in the circumstances today need to know what? God is good. God is great. God loves us. God has a plan for our lives. God will not fail us. God is faithful, immutable, unchangeable. His mercies never cease. Amen? The circumstances in Job's life were absolutely horrific. If you haven't read the book of Job and studied it, now's a good time. This week, take a look at the book of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He's a good guy, Job, chapter 1, verse 1. And he was doing really well. Life was good for Job. He had ten lovely children. He was wealthy. He had lots of livestock. He was considered blameless and upright, and then Satan took away his possessions, his livestock, his servants, and even his children. That's called really horrific, awful circumstances in life. Satan then struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And they were so bad, if you remember the story, because it's pretty graphic, he took a piece of broken pottery and used that to scratch himself while he sat in the ashes. His whole world was collapsed around him, everything that he held near and dear. And then his own physical health was horrible. And during the terrible physical suffering, Job received an amazing piece of advice. His wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I read that verse 35, 40 years ago for the first time and I said, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. Somebody told him just curse God and die. And in the margin of your Bibles, you need to write this. Don't always take the advice from your friends who give you horrible advice sometimes. His friends show up and they say such encouraging things as this. You deserve worse than what you got. 
I can't imagine a friend, you're sitting there suffering, you've lost everything, and your friend comes along and says, hey, buddy, you're not doing too good, but you know what? You deserve worse. I'm like, great. What a friend. Thanks. Boy, that was encouraging. Then Eliphaz comes and says, you know what your problem is? You don't fear God like you should, and you're just boo-hooing and feeling sorry for yourself. What a great friend. That's encouraging. If you don't get anything else out of the book of Job, get the fact that as a friend, you better do better than these idiots, right? <laughs> you don't say, just curse God and die. Just go ahead and give up, because life is hard. And you don't say, oh, shame on you. And you don't say, oh, you poor guy, quit whining. His friend Bildad comes along, and Bildad says, you know what? God punishes the unrighteous like you. In other words, all of this suffering is because you were unrighteous, but you got to go back to the beginning of the book and say, no, he wasn't being unrighteous. He was a man that was humble before God, who loved God, whose life was in order, and he was richly blessed. And his friend says, yeah. Zophar, his friend, comes along and says, hey, you know what? God lets wicked, godless people enjoy life for a short time, and then they all suffer. So he's accusing his good buddy, one of his three best friends, says, you must be one of those wicked, godless people, and you had a good life for a short time, but now, tough break, son, it's over. Eliphaz says, yeah, man, that applies to you, Job. So he's got all of this compounded bad advice. What do you learn from that? Number one, some people give terrible advice, amen? Number two, don't trust the bad advice from people who are short on mercy and full of judgment. Amen? If you've if you got a friend that has no mercy, but they love to judge other people, you need to not listen quite so carefully to what they're saying. Some people don't share a common faith with believers. They don't share a common faith. They don't believe in God. And some people are really prideful. They're like, hey, I'm not suffering. You're the one with all the sores. And then comes the chapter which I love, and it puts all the conversation about God and mankind in perspective. Chapter 38. If you don't read anything else, and you want to understand how we should be, read chapter 38 of Job. Chapter 38 starts out in verse 4. It picks up, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? This is a chapter that's all about God, and all about mankind. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? And then this really sarcastic comment says, surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? And then if you read through that entire chapter, you keep seeing these phrases that are little questions. It says, have you commanded the morning since your days began? and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Have you, have you, have you? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades 
or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in its season? Do you know the ordinance of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the heaven? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds? Can you send forth lightnings? The entire chapter is basically saying, I've done all these things, not you. I'm God, not you. You're not even a God with a little lowercase g. I am the great almighty God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. I am the almighty. And you are a creature created by me. I'm immutable, unchangeable. And in chapter 42, We get another insight into God. It says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. I don't know about you, but Job had to have a much better grasp of who God was and who he was. In the midst of suffering, In the midst of all the terrible counsel from outside him, from his wife and from his friends, he was getting back into that right standing and right understanding of God. And it says he prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Amen? Wow. What does that tell you? It says our God is a good God. So what? We need to make him known within our individual spheres of influence. Amen? We need to read Psalm 8 over and over and over again and understand how majestic is his name in all the earth. We need to make sure that our children and our children's children understand the nature of man and the nature of God. We need to teach others to consider that God has plans for us and they're better than our plans. God's plan is way better for you than your plan. We need to seize opportunities that arise to help others to understand the greatness and the goodness and the mercy and the faithfulness of God. I want to say, we, we told you, oh, six or eight weeks ago about the church in Poland so I have a friend in Poland that's a pastor. He's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. And he wrote a note and he said, we're in trouble. We've got so many refugees coming across the border from the Ukraine into Poland. And it's women and children because the men are staying behind to fight. But we have so many refugees that we're having trouble taking care of them because we're broke, we're out of money. We're putting them up in our, in our summer youth camps. We're putting them up in our churches. Our church members are putting them up in their homes. 
We're, we're having to pay enormous prices for gas to drive up to the border with the Ukraine and pick refugees up and take them back. That number has just grown exponentially, as you can imagine. And I want to tell you thank you from him, from Peter. Thank you because we sent him some money as a church. And friends and family members that I know have sent more money to say to the Polish Christians, we'll help you while you help them. Guess what? All the Ukrainian refugees that are coming across the border are not born-again believers. And in the name of Christ, they're being helped by Christians who are saying, come on in, we'll take care of you. We'll give you blankets. We'll give you a dry, warm bed. We'll give you a place to sleep. We'll keep you safe. We'll take care of you. We'll buy you some clothes. We'll take care of your children. We'll buy diapers for the babies. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen? We as Christians in horrific times need to take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us with the open door to tell people about the magnificent name of God Almighty. We need to make him known. We have to confront the woefully wrong things that our culture says with biblical truth. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, I highly recommend it, long time ago, it's an old book. He wrote a bunch of books. But the one book that I refer to fairly often is titled, How Should We Then Live? It's a great title, and the subtitle is, The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. That should get your attention. He clearly understood this. He understood that our culture in the West was already on the decline and getting worse and worse. And he said in no uncertain terms, the only viable, legitimate response for Christians is what? To totally affirm biblical truths and morals and live by them. Hard to do if you don't know the biblical truths. Hard for your kids to go to school where they're inundated with worldly philosophy unless they know the biblical truths. Here's a challenge for you. Do you believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God? Amen. Yes, it is. Do you believe that it's relevant for today? Absolutely. Do you believe it's authoritative? Wait, wait, stop. I don't want any authority over me but me, right? It's, you know, it's Bible, it's true, and it's got good stories in it, and it talks about, oh, Noah and the ark, and Jonah and the whale, and all these great Bible stories. Is it true? Yeah? Relevant? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, pretty relevant. It can be relevant. Is it authoritative? No thanks. The world says no thanks. The only authority I want in my life is me. I want to be in charge. But the Bible is true, relevant, 
and authoritative. Are we following the admonition to raise up a child in the way he should go so that when he's old he'll not depart from it? Here's for parents. Can your child learn biblical principles, Christian ethics, Christian morals well enough between now and the time that they're 18 while they're in your house because pretty soon they're moving out, living on their own. And if you think you fell under bad influences when you moved out, it's getting worse. Are they becoming biblically literate while you've got them? Biblically literate. I I was bragging to a family member about my kids in children's church a couple days ago. And I said, my kids in children's church know the stories of Elijah and Elisha better than any grown-ups in the worship service. I'm not kidding. I would challenge any adult in this room, and I'll pick three of my kids from children's church, and I'll say, I'm going to ask some questions about Elijah and Elisha. Your kids need to learn the truth about God in the Bible, amen? They need to learn about the goodness of God. They need to learn about suffering and how to deal with the circumstances in life. They need to understand the depravity of man. They need to understand what it is that motivates people to do really bad things and what prevents us from doing the really bad things. Here's the next challenge for all of us. Psalm 89 is real simple. Just take this little piece to heart. While the world is suffering from the depravity of man, God hasn't changed. God is still on his throne. God loves us. In Psalm 89, verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Amen? I'll sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I'll make known your faithfulness to all generations. Pray with me. Father, it's not fun to think about the depravity of man, to think about sinfulness and selfishness and Satan and gross immorality and sin. But it's awesome to think about your steadfast love. 
It's awesome to think about your faithfulness, your generosity, your grace, your forgiveness, and your mercy. We pray especially today, Father, that your compassion and your mercy and your grace would be poured out upon the families in Uvalde and the people in the Ukraine and even the people in Russia, those who have lost loved ones. We pray that people in horrible times and difficult trials will learn of you and turn their hearts towards you. We pray that we will be found faithful in praising you for your goodness and your abiding love. Father, help us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Help us to be students of the word and to be found wholly pleasing to you, O Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, who demonstrated your redeeming love for mankind to all of us, I pray and the people answer and say amen. 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 Let's stand and sing.